Psychic Dolphin Garage. By the way, Arctic Green Gray, I have totally uh, forgotten your first name as well. Christian. Christian. Actually. Wonderful. Uh, unusually enough, because I am a fervent atheist, quite frankly. Well, thanks, parental figures, for blessing me ahead of time. It was very, uh, let's say, an unexpected turn of events. By the way, thank you for having me on the program. I quite appreciate that. You certainly did have something interesting to talk about. And... Definitely. And, and this is certainly worth the, uh, worth the time. Um, it's just a couple of sort of things that me and some of the guys at Psychic Dolphin Garage were discussing regarding my research in terms of the potential implications of the private spaceflight industry and how potentially there could be some global catastrophic risks to humanity that could arise out of it. So, to start off, one of the things that I raise about private spaceflight, particularly in the current era of rapid deregulation of that particular industry, and in fact, on a multinational basis, it's, it's not just the U.S., in fact, that is considering going the private route when it comes to spaceflight. It's various actors in Europe, it's India, it's in some cases even Israel, in fact, have, uh, have decided to go this route. Well, and that's certainly, like, definitely not because capital is stripped of almost everything it can out of productivity of the workers here on planet Earth, and so we have to, you know, go imperialize the rest of the galaxy. Yes. Kind of like how, for example, a virus injects itself into a cell, monopolizes it, and subsequently leaves it devastated. Right. Well, the the uh, the the DNA that it's being injected of course is AI. Definitely. Yeah, and it's it's no different than the privatization of of all of the things that traditionally were unionized or at least, you know, are very big very big centers for people's labor and so they're yes. they got a lot of, you know, not only cultural weight behind them, but also but also commanded a lot of capital one example yes. you know that i can think of taxi unions oh definitely um all the railroads that used to be the backbone of american commerce and transit yes it's always been around the way that we travel ever since we have been able to cross vast amounts of land and the sea as well um you know it's always it's always been a fight uh a fight for capital's always tried to fight for a foothold in those areas Unfortunately, and, and again, we see the scars of that dichotomy, most notably in international maritime law, but also in things like, for example, the regulations around control of airspace, and also eventually in the Outer Space Treaty and its most recent amendment, the Artemis Accords. By the way, hello, Artemis. Hello. I was subbing. <laughs> As though from the ether. Absolutely. Yeah. Artemis Accords, it's an 18, 19-page document basically setting out the terms under which these new developments and the new sort of mindset that all of these corporations and governments are going to work under. Yes, but unfortunately, using my semester worth of law electives, unfortunately, it seems that the same pitfall happens in the application of the Outer Space Treaty to non-governmental and ultimately non-state entities, as with the Outer Space Treaty, unfortunately. Both the Artemis Accords and the Outer Space Treaty, from a jurisprudence perspective, have limited application under international humanitarian law to that of private entities. And it's basically the most recent ruling on it that has been handed down by various legislative bodies, including the ICC, based in The Hague, basically, is that effectively it's up to the host nation to use their own jurisprudence to regulate their own companies. But of course, it's difficult in those circumstances because many of these companies, if they don't like, because of their multinational status, operate under multiple different branches in multiple different nations. So it's kind of like fighting a hydra almost, so to speak. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, that's what we get for being gosh darn globalists. It's certainly noteworthy that 
that these accords are probably written specifically about uh, governmental agencies and specifically leave out NGOs. Yes. Yeah, I don't think that that is, you know, an error on on the behalf of whoever was pinning these up. And I guess if we wanted to kind of jump into a little bit of, you know, the history of of stuff like this being applied, we don't even have to really dig back into the history books. A very accessible example would be Boeing's uh, recent, uh, what jet was that that they have that just like 737 Max, I believe you're referring to. Yep. That lovely, uh, delicious software error that they had. Oh, well, it wasn't an error. It's it's our plane crashes unless you buy the ten million dollar add-on. Well, yes, of pay course. To <laughs> pay, pay pay to win, basically. The only thing is, is there's the old adage of never attribute to malice what can adequately be explained by stupidity. And whilst maybe it's sort of unrealistic optimism on my part, I would kind of like to suspect at least the best in people but unfortunately that stance has uh that stance has not been very successful as of late yeah and it's not just it's not just specifically like large airlines that have Mm -hmm. made like a very public error yeah it's also in a much smaller sense it's also uh budget airlines such as like spirit airlines that yes that are not operating well, I, I guess there aren't there aren't really any standards for how they're supposed to operate for the the pollution that they're putting out, anything like that. Well, and even even more dangerous than that, to what standard the aircraft are maintained. I mean, one of the most worrying cases of this, in fact, one where the NTSB and the FAA investigated it, and in fact did not litigate against the carrier itself or the upper brass of the carrier itself was the case of Value Jet Flight 592, which crashed in the Everglades as a result of a fire caused by improperly stored oxidizing materials. In fact, those that are typically used for basically the onboard oxygen systems. And in fact, whilst the subcontractor was in fact tried in absentia, Value Jet and also its upper management was in fact not litigated against. And prior to it, in fact, their previous incidents had the FAA basically publish a recommendation, hindsight being 2020, of course, to recommend that the entire value jet airline, its entire fleet be grounded, basically. <laughs> and of course, the stakes in spacefaring are much higher, uh, as the propellants that are often used are often toxic, explosive, hypergolic, meaning you combine the two basically and they spontaneously ignite and also carcinogenic. Right, right. So so what I'm hearing is that uh is that when we were investigating the uh the Bermuda Triangle, nobody thought to look at which airline it was that was losing all these jets just for no reason. I suspect that may have a bit of a role to play in in the entire Bermuda Triangle yeah. dichotomy. Yeah, ValueJet of course defunct in 1997, got sold yep. to AirTrain Airways. Which also just another low cost airline that got gobbled up by Southwest. Yep. But uh, that was in 2014, actually. So not even that long ago. But this is, yeah, this is certainly not something that has changed majorly. That's the reason why Frontier and the other one that I mentioned uh, mm-hmm. that I can't think of now, but you know, all these value airlines exist is because they're cutting corners on something. A lot of times it's, yes. uh, you know, you don't get to take baggage, you don't get a you know good in-flight meal, but that's not even the largest cost. Most of the cost is maintaining their their airplanes. And of course, jet fuel, not nearly as dangerous as the liquid fuel that is carried in uh, in the, is it now multiple uh, NASA space shuttle explosions? It Yeah, unfortunately. Challenger, Columbia... And, of course, the innumerable accidents they've had with their Delta Series rockets. Several of those have, in fact, exploded. Lovely. Yeah, just absolutely immolated. Yes, unfortunately. It's a circumstance where, basically, the thing that goes wrong usually is the worst thing to go wrong, and also at the worst possible moment, unfortunately. So, spaceflight, unfortunately, is hard enough without the private entities basically potentially cutting corners and interestingly enough this trend in decentralization of space flight and space exploration 
has in fact likely also been driven partially by the fact that SpaceX, for example, according to OpenSecrets.org, has actually donated equally to both main political parties in the last five election cycles. The rationale being both parties are keen to champion certain emerging technologies via basically introducing neoliberal policies towards managing them, and also are keen to hand out tax, tax breaks. Of course. Well, and it always comes down to it always comes down to the tax breaks. Unfortunately, unfortunately. technology technology is it, it can often be a completely politically neutral battlefield. And what um basically technological bureaucracies seek is funding in all cases. So if you can provide yep. that to them, then they will lobby either party. They will get involved with either you know NGO or international group or any other number of things to get that funding and secure it for their own research. Yes, good point, Artemis. That uh, That's essentially one of the things that is also driving this, is the detachment of scientists from what their research is actually being done with, quite frankly. You know, particularly in the case of spaceflight, the engineers and scientists being employed by a company like SpaceX, ultimately don't get to decide whether their innovations are used in a way that is beneficial to all humanity, as is the directive with most fields of science and engineering, or deleteriously. Yeah, so that is a larger issue, I guess, with yes. uh, you know, with the way that, that, that capital seeks to profit off of off of scientific innovation, off of technological innovation. And then claim that uh, that capitalism allowed that thing to occur in the first place when, you know, maybe there certainly is an amount of people that are participating in in the research for big picture reasons. Like, yes, humanity, yes. you know, we do want to expand. We do want to go into space, but we're not developing a way that is either sustainable or safe at the end of the day. Yes. And that is kind of why, like, you know, oh, let me just Google who sells rocket fuel to NASA and <laughs> who sells rocket fuel in, in NASA to uh, to NASA and SpaceX. It like, might be Aerojet Rocket Dyne. I haven't looked into that recently, but I'm pretty sure they're the guys that do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, you know, there's a whole list of people that we can get into that are that are on that side of things. But but yes. to focus on, like, you know, the dangers of, of not only private companies handling all this fuel a good example i think would be talking about uh nuclear plants and the way that we handle getting fuel to and from those like not only is that fuel dangerous if it is not tracked because of the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the 20th and 21st centuries yes but something like uh liquid hydrogen liquid oxygen exploding massively in the atmosphere not only toxic uh substances that can be uh, released, but also potentially uh, spread across, you know, an entire country. I mean, not to mention, in terms of nuclear programs, really the nuclear initiative, both as a combination of a political and prestige tool, is where we get this idea of technological initiatives being a tool of national prestige, global capital, and this tool to get access to resources uh the united states atoms for peace program uh, circa yes. like 1950s 1960s was a way to build reactors or get uranium plants in countries that were developing to try and sway them away from the soviets so there's precedent for this so i didn't speak. know that the english american supergroup uh was just building nuclear reactors well, and in fact, the the issue of sort of atomic imperialism is in fact one that in, I would say, the general decline of nuclear research, basically, one that unfortunately Canada has gotten into, particularly with uh, our can-do reactors. Now, unfortunately, can-do reactors are not as proliferation-resistant as they've been heralded to be because, in fact, India has actually used CANDU or CANDU-based reactors to produce the plutonium used in its uh, Smiling Buddha series of nuclear tests. Nice. 
Well, yes. I mean, so much for the Iran deal, I guess. And it's also pertinent, uh, Zach, quite timely, in fact, that you mentioned uh, nuclear material because, in fact, there have been several instances of nuclear contamination requiring cleanup under the Outer Space Treaty, um, particularly several of the Cosmos series of Soviet satellites actually deorbited after failed launches and spread plutonium-238, if I recall, over a significant part of the Canadian North. We, uh, there was actually a significant amount allotted to clean that up in funds, of course. But unfortunately, that's also where there's a hole in the legislation because, again, it's an issue of who pays to clean up the mess when an RTG falls off of SpaceX's rockets, for example. Yeah, plutonium-238 is used specifically to provide electricity where solar power cannot be used on spacecraft. Yes. So these Cosmos vehicles uh, deorbiting and spreading it is because they were using it for their battery backup. Uh, but now we use, you know, good, good Venezuelan lithium. So yes. thanks to Elon Musk, space travel is going to be cleaner than ever. Definitely. Don't forget the Bolivians, too. We're stealing their lithium as well. Oh, they're stealing our lithium. Right, yes. right. <laughs> no, no, well, no. no <laughs> you, you get it. Yeah, no, all of... As white glove as space travel seems, we're not sending up, you know, these pristine vehicles that aren't going to even pollute the the places that they land. Like, and and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but you know, not only is there a risk of private companies putting up dangerous vehicles, but then also landing them on exoplanets and uh, and contaminating exoplanets as well. Yes, the entire issue of planetary protection. And in fact, the current planetary protection officer, which in my opinion is the second coolest job title in existence. <laughs> First coolest, I'm, I'm, the jury is still out on that, but second coolest, definitely. Um, NASA's planetary protection officer has actually raised some issues, of course, with SpaceX's most recent and let's say most outrageous marketing stunts, particularly using one of their Tesla Roadsters as a test weight and subsequently putting it into orbit. The thing is, is we already have a big problem with micrometeorites in orbit and space junk in general because of the fact that the stuff up there is moving at speeds equivalent to the muzzle velocity of an AR-15. And as a result, that can cause significant damage, even if you have just a small chunk that has fallen off of a satellite. It can cause significant damage to other satellites and other space vehicles in the immediate vicinity. So really, planetary protection is not just about exoplanets, and it's not necessarily just about protecting E.T. from getting a cold or the flu. It's about protecting, in essence, the future of both humans and also anyone whom we might come across in space, effectively, and also for the resources that are required to sustain life off our planet, basically. Yeah. Now, this actually did happen recently, not to not junk colliding, but a, a very, yes. very near miss between a dead Soviet satellite and a discarded uh, Chinese rocket body. Um, yes. We have to track all these things, and these objects are tracked using uh, radar arrays. They apparently passed... Yep, and tracking causes costs money. Uh, well, yeah, and, and they apparently passed anywhere from 26 to 140 feet away from each other, which is like a, across a highway from each other. Pretty literally, much. Literally a stone's throw. Yes. So, and, and that, this, <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but if these objects had collided the explosion would have been equivalent to 14 metric tons of TNT. Yes. You're dealing with a lot of kinetic energy when you're dealing with anything in orbit, unfortunately. Well, yeah. And we're adding more, you know. Uh, Tesla is, added all, is doing all their Skylink satellites now, which are already interrupting yes. uh, deep space telescopes. Unfortunately. Which is, uh, it seems really good that that was what came out of, I believe we talked about it. I think it came out of like the stimulus bills. They, uh, yeah. they approved this, and they approved they approved Amazon putting satellites up as well. So, our representatives are really doing well. The you know Nancy Pelosi, famed expert on uh, space debris. Yep. Again, 
Uh, it's a situation where, uh, where scientists, unfortunately, don't really have control over the way that their technologies are being used. It's, you know, it's the same, it's or a similar dichotomy, rather, to what we faced with nuclear weapons, almost, yeah. at the advent of, of nuclear weapons. But, unfortunately, in this case, it's, we also have the private sector to worry about. And as a result, there are some fairly disconcerting trends that could potentially come up as a result of that. Yeah. So the problem, the main problem with the way that we do it currently is that it is just the Artemis Accords. But the Artemis Accords, again, you know, only apply to uh, nations and government programs. And there's not really anything in them that talks about a sustainable future in space. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not surprised. It is, I would say, a rather morbid subject because there are circumstances where a misstep could be grievous enough to not basically have, you know, a situation where in the future human civilization even exists to look back in hindsight and say, well, we could have done this to fix it because of the fact that interplanetary contamination, specifically if it's an extraterrestrial pathogen, is a big deal. You know, Kessler syndrome, uh, basically an uncontrolled proliferation of space junk, which subsequently knocks out entire constellations of satellites, possibly even preventing us from going into orbit safely for hundreds of thousands of years, is a big deal. And so... It's the stakes are much higher, as with any emerging technology, in the case of spaceflight. It's not an isolated thing. It's not a toy that legislators are allowed to play around with. These are serious things, and they need to be examined by the experts, not by the politicians. We need to have it done by the experts, not the not the companies paid for by the uh, you know by the Teslas of the world. Yes, to, the politicians to, and and also and also the Elon Musks of the world. The Elon Musk cult. Yeah, we don't yes. we don't say the T word on this podcast. Didn't know that was a taboo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The planetary safety officer, of course, not only contaminating our planet with foreign entities, but contaminating other planets. Something that's just going to disappear uh, under the uh, what's the worst that we launched the Exxon Valdez uh, deep space rocket. Like, that's almost worse than, than naming one the Titanic, right? Yes, I would say that's right up there, considering that ecological disasters in space are, in terms of the possibility for allowing the continuity of space exploration to, to, to exist, they're going to be much more serious, because, let's say, for example, if you have an RTG basically a fuel tank break open on a probe that's sitting on a glacier on Mars, basically, that entire glacier cannot now be melted down and used for the water supply of a colony there. Right. And, you know, the circumstances where that could happen could potentially render entire continents on Mars uh, uninhabitable to humans, basically, as a result of that. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the reason why there are there's nothing in the Artemis Accords about pollution or about, uh, you know, either through the standards, the vehicle standards, or through, you know, what we leave up there. Yes. Even though there's a section that says registration of space objects, but not, you know, limiting the objects that are in space. Like, yes. the reason why this is this could be important is because, you know, we now have the Space Force and... We're going to have countries... We already have... Uh, we certainly already have spy satellites up in space. Yeah. Well, again, and, and there's also the entire rods from God thing that that was being thrown around around the early 2010s or something like that. Basically, the you know, the idea was place some tungsten rods in, in orbit and, you know, if there's anything we don't like, we can deorbit them and bring them down on countries with the same force as a nuclear weapon, but with 90% less fallout, basically. I mean, you know what? I'm, I am gotta say, this is an anime-ass idea, so I support whichever weeb is in the Air Force that proposed no, this. No, it's just whoever it was. It's some guy in the Marine Corps chucked his crayon 
at the nearest soldier, and they decided to put it on a galactic scale. <laughs> yep, I, I, I contest that that was probably the thought process that went into it, because, again, if there were any scientists or aerospace engineers in the room, most likely, in my opinion, they would be tearing their hair out <laughs> listening to that. Thankfully, I am not an aerospace <laughs> engineer. <laughs> So I just, you know, I, I just, I simply support it um, on principle alone. Uh, this is not unlike their, uh, the kinetic weapons that they're developing for uh, ships now, like their uh, electromagnetic cannons. I don't know what they call those. Railguns. Rail Kills guns, people, not the environment. Yeah. Yeah. This is just yep. a very, a very dumb railgun that you don't need to use electricity for. You just drop it. Exactly. But it's pertinent to also mention that in terms of big toys that they'll never use. It's not like the U.S. military is any stranger to that. I mean, there are satellite photos, for example, of hundreds upon hundreds of F-15s that have never been flown and just sit in boneyards for the entirety of their service life. Oh, yeah. It, it, and, it, well, and then there's, I don't remember what the big uh, mass grave is, but there's just that, just hundreds of, of acres, thousands of acres of just airplanes but yeah, the mass grave of just airplanes that have just been decommissioned that they can't do anything with. Yep. Wow, we actually have. Okay, so some of these countries. So Australia has an aircraft boneyard. Canada has two aircraft boneyards. One of them has 23 Fokker F 28s. And the other one has. Uh, stores older RCAF aircraft. Kyrgyzstan has one. Spain has one. UK has two. Um, one from the end of World War II to 1972, and one Air Salvage International, which is actually an aircraft decommissioning company, so that's not just like a giant field. America has 14 aircraft boneyards. 14 notable aircraft boneyards. Disconcertingly enough, yes. Yeah, Roswell, New Mexico, enough. Abilene, Laurenburg, Max, North Carolina, Mississippi, Michigan, California, California, California. San Bernardino, wow. Uh, Arkansas and uh, four in Arizona. Uh, the, and the big one is, of course, the AFB in Arizona. It's 4,400 aircraft on 2,600 acres. Good Lord, Arizona is going to probably be a strategic target in the event of like a second, you know, a second civil war. I mean, like, Arizona has enough there to ha start its own Air Force, basically. Yeah, honestly, if we just liberate enough uh, jet fuel, then certainly we can get at least one of them going. How much, how, how decommissioned do you think all those airplanes are? Uh, well, given uh, How the... many drones do you think are already, have already been decommissioned or just sitting around waiting for someone to hack into them? Um, quite frankly, I don't know offhand, but... Probably a disconcerting amount, given the fact that it's now been 20 years that the U.S. Air Force has had dedicated unmanned combat aerial vehicles that have been mission-ready around the clock, basically. Um, so I would say probably a disconcerting amount just sitting there. But, I mean, you know, there are DC-3 Dakotas that are still flying. I'm sure that if you liberate Arizona, you can have your own Air Force. There you go. There you go. You heard it Mom here. Mom said it's my turn on the robot uprising. <laughs> well, what are some of the steps uh, that hopefully we would theoretically want to take first? Is like the first step to improving the Artemis Accords. Well, let's let's let Artemis talk about it first, quite frankly. I know it's been... Artemis, you these know... are your Accords after all. Oh, okay. First of all... I was not consulted on this. <laughs> they did not acquire naming rights. I don't think anyone in this room was Artemis. <laughs> that is unfortunate. I would have told them a number of things. Yes. Um, the first thing is obviously access for NGOs. There's a little bit of a definition of how to split resources, how resources would be acquired, like where they're going to put people, operational standards. But there really should be a law of space travel and basically a law that says you can't just claim a planet yeah <laughs> because what's what this is a blatant attempt to do is they're going to go to the moon they're going to maybe try do moon based things but it seems like they're just using the moon as a training ground for a trip to mars but 
really what they should be focusing on is the operative word of the entire accords, which is sustainability. Well, the thing the thing about that is previously they were all over the, the place in terms of that. I mean, I remember when they were, when NASA at least, was championing an asteroid redirect mission as a potential testbed for Mars landing technologies, you know. That was only about five years ago now. And it seems like not only can they not decide on what to do, but it seems like even their least ambitious plans seem to be cut back due to the fact that they're getting their funding cut more and more every year in order to basically compensate for these tax breaks that are being given to SpaceX. Yes, precisely. Which just goes to show that what they want is they want to automate capitalism. They want to automate, uh, you know, stripping of resources from Earth so that they can begin to put, you know, more manpower and thought into stripping resources from planets in our own solar system. Yep, I would contest that that's one of the courses of action that they're planning out. Yeah, and I've I try to mention as often as I can that uh, access to energy is, of course, the foundation of of the human civilization's rise. Uh, in the past thousand years, as like our our societies have slowly coalesced, and obviously the goal would be, uh, like Artemis was saying, like, hey, you can't claim you can't claim a planet for yourself. Just like yes. just like and write that, that down very clearly. You cannot claim a planet for yourself. There, that was easy. It's a damn shame. I wanted Pluto. <laughs> yes, Artemis, you can have Pluto. It's cold there, and. There's not a lot of resources, but there's plenty of water ice there. It's, and it's just Fargo, then. <laughs> Actually, yes, I would say... Well, come to think of it, there are places colder than Fargo. I mean, if you walk to Pluto with a big iron on your hip, then nobody's going nobody's gonna to contest your claim. Yeah. Now, mind you, it would need to be a railgun-powered big iron. Yes, Because yes. unless you're dealing with smokeless powder, that thing's not going to fire in space. I, I specced into energy weapons for this exact reason. <laughs> plasma cannons last year thanks now christian you did mention uh like a joint stock setup that could yes. work i i think that yes. that is a very interesting idea having all this publicly owned resources that are up in space and then publicly owned uh space equipment and then we're just manning the equipment with you know with other companies that want to train people and send them out yes well primarily the idea that was sort of the the inception of this sort of a middle ground between countries that on the international stage would argue for complete public control of space and space resources, and those that may not entirely agree with that idea, of course, barring a worldwide proletarian revolution in the next five years, which again, I'm not going to discount, but it seems less and less likely by the day, unfortunately. Anyhow, the idea that I had is similar to the way that the Cuban government manages its hotels and tourism services. Because Cuba is very near and dear to my heart. I've spent a lot of time there volunteering with various work brigades, um, primarily through my university. But regardless, the way that they monitor their and organize their hotels is via sort of a joint stock venture, where basically the Cuban government owns the facility. They own the staff. They pay the staff what they want to pay the staff, which is usually up to the same standard that Cuban workers are supposed to have, basically. And effectively, what they do is they approach companies like, for example, Barcelo, which is a big sort of hotel company that that's based out of Spain, and says... Okay, Barcelo, we have this facility here, we've built it to our specifications, which, by the way, the WWF, World Wildlife Fund, has said in regards to Cuba that they're the only country in the world, in fact, that has conformed to their sustainability recommendations. They basically approach these hotel companies and say, we will enter into a partnership with you for a limited contract, and you will get some of the revenue that goes into it what 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 you pay to us to lease is ours we're keeping that but you get the rest and we ensure that our standards in terms of the tourism industry in terms of 
how our workers are treated in terms of where you can develop in terms of environmental regulations are monitored. And as a result, I looked at that and extrapolated that potentially this could be a viable way of allowing, through an international court, for example, private and nonprofit enterprises to still participate in spaceflight whilst allowing an acceptable amount of oversight and accountability. Because ultimately, this would allow for governments to basically be accountable for their own space operations apart from the policies that the individuals leasing the spacecraft uh, have. Basically, it's similar to what airlines call a wet lease nowadays, where basically you don't own the aircraft, you don't own own the fuel in the aircraft, you don't own the employees, the flight attendants, the crew, but the passenger revenue, that's all yours, buddy. Right. And as a result, this would allow for, hypothetically, keyword being hypothetically, a situation where, for example, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, could go forward and say, okay, America, we've got reports that one of your spacecraft has been spilling plutonium uh, stuff, basically, all over mining areas on the moon, and China and India have been upset with you as a result of that. You need to go to NASA and tell them to cut that shit out, and, yeah. and rather than well, and there would be an organization that is in charge of all of the spacecraft that are from a particular country, exactly that are up there, and that's because it's not going to be easy to coordinate every country that is up in space all at the same time. Effectively, there there needs to be an admiralty court similar to that which is already in force, in fact to prosecute crimes at sea. Right, so, um, right. And so kind of granulating it to, you know, country by country basis, each country needs to have not only, you know, we need to lead the example in this because we are, you know, presumably the leading space organization in the world. Primarily. Pri- primarily, yeah. uh, you know, right behind China, Russia, India. So, you know, we, we are the leading ones. We need to be setting the foot forward. We need to be having a strong um, set of guidelines, which we use to not only maintain the equipment that is owned by the government, but also to, I mean, even if we did have some way to tell SpaceX to fuck off if they were doing something, mm. like, I don't think we have that in place. Yeah, well, there's no way. The thing is, is it's similar to... The current problems we've had with Blackwater, Academia, and Sandline International, all prominent private military or basically mercenary companies, where they're multinational corporations, and if a country tries to prosecute them, they can just close their office and get the hell out of there, basically. Um, In the case of the U.S., they're actually, they can just sit in the U.S. because of the fact that the U.S. is, in fact, not a party to the Rome Statute, which does regulate the amendments to the Geneva Conventions, which deal with mercenaries and mercenarism in theaters of warfare, basically. So this, of course, in the case where you have an extremely decentralized environment, so a situation where maybe the U.N. Registration Convention under the Outer Space Treaty sort of umbrella of different pieces of legislative material that has been proposed, particularly, as I mentioned, the Registration Convention. If there was a modification to that, basically saying that any corporation that wants to put a rocket into space, they have to be flagged with the jurisdiction of a certain nation. You can't say, well, this is property of SpaceX. You have to say, similar to how naval vessels operate, This is property of SpaceX with a home port in Washington, D.C., or a home spaceport in Boca Raton, or wherever wherever is your local jurisdiction. But of course... Yeah, so not only tying companies in in their property to countries. Yes. Not only tying property to companies, but also to a country whose, whose laws they have to follow. Yes. But the, but the problem that comes up with this, and this is one of the reasons why, in terms of what has been proposed, this is going to be the least successful option, is because of the fact that there's already a problem under international humanitarian and international maritime law where flags of convenience are adopted 
under maritime law by certain companies that want to skirt labor regulations or even do things as rudimentary as marry people at sea. A lot of cruise ships, for example, will be registered in Panama because it'll allow ship captains to basically marry people at sea, even though that's not necessarily allowed by the country that the shipping company necessarily operates in. So what I'm hearing is that Malta is going to have a lot of spacecraft registered. Yeah, uh, Malta, the Cayman Islands, and probably anywhere else with a favorable tax income or limited governmental stability, I would think. Yeah, so not only is it important that, you know, that we create an international standard for this, I mean... The United States hasn't ratified the Rome Statute, but they've signed it, which means like, yeah, this is yeah. cool. We can't not sign it, but we don't have to agree to it. Um, yeah, we need to be out in front of all these things. You know, it was super important for coronavirus. We failed. A lot of yep. countries model their responses based off of how we model our response because we were considered a leading medical technology center for the world. Yeah. I say were well, because I don't know if anybody still considers us that. But, you know, our lack of response was modeled by other countries that are, that are also still suffering. To, to, to just fill you in, Zach, on sort of what, in my opinion, the international community, at least in Canada, views uh, the U.S. medical establishment as currently, is it's a situation where there's still a limited degree of recognition that, yes, we're dealing with a major power in terms of medical science, but it, it's there is a lot of concern over how much ideological interference is occurring into, for example, the CDC figures and the figures of the National Institute of Health, for example. Or, for example, what's appearing in the literature. There's There are already reports, at least by certain whistleblowers, that coronavirus deaths are being underestimated by the CDC. And of course, in terms of the medical literature of other countries, when there's a potential, even however slight of ideological bias, that is very disconcerting from a science perspective because it raises questions on how long that ideological bias has existed and whether it can be weeded out in, in the future ultimately. Because, again, the concern that this is raised in the medical establishment, not necessarily being in medicine, but certainly reading the literature here and internationally, basically, the concern is how long has this been going on? Has this been going on since the beginning of the Trump administration, since Trump's new policies towards managing the CDC took hold? How long has it existed, and what potential cases of scientific misconduct have occurred during that period of time that, in fact, haven't made the news because they haven't been in the midst of an international pandemic. Yeah, well, you know, the the moment we brought the German scientists over to help us finish up our nuclear weapon was kind of the moment that we really lost out on that one. So, mm -hmm. yeah, certainly we do not have a good history of this, and this is just another good reason why we need to radically rethink the way that United States structures not only the systems of healthcare, yeah, a dumb easy like. thing that you can that you should be able to fix relatively easily because having healthy citizens is good for your country. Yes. Um, and also it sounds even better when you can say, yeah, we're the most technologically advanced country. We have these great medical science centers, and our citizens just don't die of cancer anymore. Like that, that that'd be great, but. That's not the way it works. So, yeah, we do need to get in front of all, you know, the myriad of problems that are presented um, by the idea of private space travel that are not being answered by the Artemis Accords, um, especially the most pressing one, on which planet will the Psychic Dolphin Garage be built? Yes. So if we're going to if we're going to close out, maybe not uh, fully automated communist gay space communism. But kind of talking about, you know, where do we need to start in terms of communalizing these vehicles, these resources that are being poured into space, space exploration. In terms of that, let's also, I would say, it's also prudent to remain optimistic about how far 
international law can advance in a short period of time. I mean, for example, the Ottawa Treaty, which banned the use of cluster munitions. Uh, the Ottawa Treaty, the Convention on the Prohibition of the Use, Stockpiling, Production, and Transfer of Anti-Personal Mines and on their destruction. Uh, we didn't even sign that one because we like our claymores too much. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, and in fact, it's not even the claymores. It's the minimum metal mines that are made of plastic and you can't even pick up with a metal detector, unfortunately. Or those mines we disguised as uh, food aid and dropped in Iraq. <laughs> oh, yeah. those the, Forgot about those. Food yeah. aid that, Yeah, mines. it's easy to forget. It's the yeah. mines where they mine yes. the food out of, right? They're like, there's open pit and long walling, you know, mines. It's it's big industry in in Iraq. Good, good. Well, I mean, you know, how what what other reason would we have to produce all these blast-proof vehicles that are just giant PTSD boxes if there weren't mines to defend ourselves against? So, I blame the people defending themselves from imperialism, honestly. Yeah, that's the irony of the situation is that in in that case, most of the ordinance that was basically turned into ieds was u.s made duds effectively yeah. well and you know and to bring that kind of to to get into space travel like we spend so much money undoing problems that we created on the planet earth once we start polluting and just fucking up outer space we're going to be spending so much more money to to clean up to fix to to do all this the right way because eventually we will have to do it the right way or we will die. Mm -hmm. Effectively, um, in, instead of you know, uh, currently it's a it's a United States Army general that is the commander of the U.S. Space Command. So yes, uh, and that's not even the Space Force, which is all of these should like not only should our should all military branches have civilian uh, oversight, like deeply integrated civilian oversight. But, like, most especially, space is the one that we don't really need military oversight in most of this. Like, if we run into aliens, they're either going to kill us or they're not going to well, kill us. Well, and that's, like, that's the uh, other thing. Any civilization that can reach our planet probably has mega nukes that yes. can just blow up the planet. And, and, and Please use the uh, mega nukes. Please, God. Why are you not using the mega nukes? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Well, um, um, so any 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 last thoughts that you have? Just throw them out there right now. Um, I've I've pretty much uh, dealt with everything. Again, go with the procedure outlined in the original Outer Space Treaty, which is keep private entities out of the cosmos, carte blanche. But unfortunately, because of the fact that in most cases politics proceeds. At a snail's pace, I would say that the joint stock method, I think, is a viable way to conduct ourselves in the interim. Um, optimistically, I would say let's not underestimate the pace at which international change, particularly that in terms of international humanitarian law, can occur. And I just want to close out with a quote, again, from the Outer Space Treaty, the exploration and use of outer space as specified in the Outer Space Treaty shall be carried out for the benefit and interests of all countries and shall be the province of all mankind. And in my opinion, it should stay that way. Except Pluto. I get Pluto. You get Pluto, Artemis. Yeah, That's we true. We don't consider Artemis a private entity, so... Really, I don't see a problem with putting it that way in the resolution. Yeah, Artemis. No, not, it's not private. It's just mine. Her own micronation. Her her own micronation. Yes. Yeah. So, well, thank you, Christian, for joining us. Thank you, Artemis, for for joining us as well. This has been an interesting conversation. There's so much to talk about surrounding space travel. This is really like a yeah, very... Yeah, I know. Like, we didn't even cover all of it, unfortunately. Yeah, we have to speed run everything to to kind of hit on a lot of the major points. But I, I'm glad that we got to sit down and talk about this. Uh, you know, so you're listening to the Psychic Dolphin Garage. Check out the rest of our social media platforms and the rest of our shows, especially our Twitch streams on Tuesdays and Fridays, uh, as well as Minecraft Mondays. Uh, Artemis is sometimes at those as well. So that is where you will find her. Christian, do you have social media you'd like to plug? It's, um, well, yes, I can be found on Twitter and Facebook 
at the Arctic Ringo, exactly the same as, uh, as, well, basically at the Arctic Ringo, and I am trying actively to get my YouTube stuff figured out, but unfortunately, YouTube being the way they are, they are more than willing to false flag my stuff. Comrades content all over is being uh, repressed by the state structure, so... Unfortunately. Um, thank you again for joining us. Uh, yeah, definitely check out Twitter, Facebook content, and Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube content that they're putting out, and we hope to see everybody else uh, back uh, Tuesday for another episode from the Psychic Dolphin Garage. Thanks for listening. Hasta la victoria siempre, comrades. Howdy, y'all. Don't forget to follow our link tree in the show notes to discover new things like our Discord, social media platforms, and all the places where you can listen to our podcast. Word of mouth is the best way to introduce us and other leftist creators to friends, family, coworkers, your AA buddies. Community is about more than hot takes online. And if you want to support our efforts, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash psychicdolphingarage, which is spelled how it sounds. Hope to see you on the stream tonight. Enjoy this music by JJ Dean. How the fuck I still got a full head of hair? Not a single brain. Fuck the cops. Family first. Every single day. Bringing a charm when I bring the alarm. My arms got a box cutter and sticky. We gotta abolish ice. We gotta abolish ice. Abolish it. No need to apologize to Holocaust apologists. For no reason we colonize the land and put up monuments. Dope needles. Dollar signs to globe stairs and astonish. I hope there'll be a punishment. I really want to get bloody. I really want to stand in judgment of anybody taking money from anybody in the struggle. Anybody on a budget. Poor people getting 10 to 20 for some dumb shit. Corporations incorporating a bloodlet. Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless. Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless. Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless. Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless. Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless. Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless. Mark my fucking words.